Today on Never Was a Gamer, we're talking about the life-changing magic of tidying up. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is my very own North Star, made mostly of trash, Dimitri. <laughs> We're all just cosmic trash. Stars when, made of trash. When you really think about <laughs> this it. This is what Carl Sagan said famously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, thanks so much for joining us as we kick off season two with Katamari Damasi. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently for this season. First of all, no more two-part episodes. Yeah. We're going to talk about the game in this episode so we can get through more games. More games. The other new thing we're going to be doing this season is grouping our games into three game mini arcs around a specific topic or theme. And the first of those mini arcs that we're beginning today with Katamari Damashi is what we're calling unique mechanics-driven games. <laughs> That's the language that we have been using amongst ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not the most specific. So let me unpack a little bit about what we mean by that. Basically, we came to this idea when we both realized that since Michelle started playing games again as an adult, she never really was exposed to a time before the indie boom, or, you know, before the proliferation of smaller experimental games that could explore a single mechanic or a single idea fully. Yeah, those have been a pretty regular part of my like game playing diet uh, for my whole adult tenure. So it's crazy to me that that was not always there. No, and and I mean, it really couldn't be, right? Because there was no infrastructure to support it, especially on consoles, before you could have downloadable games. Because basically, you had to release something on disc for, in a lot of cases, full price. In this case, Katamari Damashi was actually a budget game. It was, uh, I think, 20 US dollars, probably about 30 Canadian dollars. It's a steal. Picked it up. Yeah, an absolute steal. And and it, and it might not have done as well. And people might not have taken a chance buying it if it was, if it was priced any higher. Mm-hmm. But basically with this arc, I want to take you back to the early 2000s to look at three games that really stood out for their uniqueness and in a lot of cases for the simplicity. And it's the simplicity that made them unique Hmm. Uh, because this was a time when games were becoming increasingly complex, increasingly homogenous. The industry seemed to have settled on a few key genres and seeing something that looks so unfamiliar like a Katamari Damashi really, you know, made me take note. Hmm. Would you happen to remember what some of the biggest like sort of mainstream games were that came out around the time of Katamari? So Katamari Damashi came out in 2004. A lot of good games came out in 2004, uh, but you might see a trend here. For example, Half-Life 2, uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, Halo 2, Metroid Prime 2, Metal Gear Solid 3. Ah. Yeah, right. We, we're yeah. kind of... <laughs> There's a lot of, a lot of sequelitis going on. I and know again, what those all look like now. Yeah, and it, <laughs> Um, Pikmin 2 came out that year. Uh, but by and large, right, we're in we're in a period of, you know, intense sequelization. Right. People have identified what works. They're doing more of it. You know, these games are good, but they're not, again, making me take note like a Katamari, what is something that is so singular and, and unique. That makes sense. So had you heard about this game before we played it for the for the show? Yes. So I knew it both by title and I knew like I think I had seen the cover art for it. Okay. So I knew a little bit at least about that sort of um, very flat visual style. And I knew what the 
prince looks like although i wouldn't have known that his name was the prince okay <laughs> and i think i i had a very rough image of uh the king but i didn't have any context for it whatsoever and i knew it was a game about uh rolling stuff up in a ball and getting okay. bigger so you know not nothing certainly uh and i knew that people are very attached to it like i i knew that it is sort of special it's one of those games, though, where I'm shocked and I don't understand really how you could see it, you know, see the cover art and not ask questions and, <laughs> say, and want to know what the context is for that. Yeah, it's pretty distinctive, like you said. Um, we also, a bunch of years back, played another game that is by the same developer or maybe just the same team uh, called Tenya Wanya Teens that we saw at like a museum where it was playable. Mm. But to be honest, at the time, because I hadn't played Katamari, I didn't fully have the context of like what what to connect this to, right? Um, and so I remember that playing experience. Um, but yeah, do you want to set up what that game is really oh, briefly? Oh boy, uh, yeah, sure. Um, so it it plays with this weird controller board that's like uh, four by four buttons, um, and they light up different colors, and you play against another player. And you're these two little kids, like teens, I guess. You have to go through and do all these different activities, like push the button that lights up this color to take a shower, and then push the button that lights up this color to fart on a skunk. <laughs> and then as it goes on, it'll just give you the visual prompts, like there'll be, you know, a shower thing on the screen and a skunk running around. And you have to remember what the buttons are that do those actions based on what they were before. And the colors associated with the buttons are always changing. Yeah. Uh, which makes it much more difficult and it becomes really just this frantic button mashy memorization. It's very chaos. funny. It's very funny. Yeah. And again, something that really can only exist in, in a museum. Mm -hmm. And and I think this really ties back to the creator of Katamari, who uh, whose name is Keita Takahashi. He's another one of these auteurist type designers and it's his vision is really tied to these games. And in, the, in the case of Tenya Wanya teams, he collaborated with some other developers, not necessarily his Katamari team. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's a really interesting guy because he has a background not in games, but in fine art. If you remember when we talked about Shadow of the Colossus, Fumiko Ueda also comes out of a, a fine art background. And then, you know, a year later in 2005 puts together another game that is pretty singular and has a very unique vision and does things mechanically that were that were pretty yeah. new and fresh at the time. Um, so yeah, there's something about these fine artists coming into the gaming space that really um, shakes up tradition in a, in a really refreshing, uh, productive way, I think. But for Takahashi, his love was sculpture. He loved working with physical materials. He loved making physical objects. He liked making things you can touch. For hmm. him, he really wanted art to be tactile, which explains why you know he'd really want to create this piece that might only be able to exist in a museum. It also explains kind of why, you know, if Katamari is his first like big video game, it takes the form that it does. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm curious about why video games was even an appealing form for him, uh, given what you just said about his attachment to sort of tactile media. In interviews, he talks about how, you know, when he was going to art school and in college and finishing college, and he hadn't really played games since his youth, but he was still really drawn to their mass appeal. And he saw a connection between games and sculpture. He saw them as both um, fun and useless, he said. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but yeah, I think he saw this connection between sculpture and games, as uh, games as being a tactile art form, at least on the part of the player. Hmm. So I'm sure we'll talk more about Takahashi as, as we go, but I think that's something useful to keep in mind when we're thinking about what his goals are with uh, with all of his games, but with Katamari Damashi in this case specifically. Cool. 
But before we dive into you know the design decisions behind Katamari, do you want to just set up what this is, if you can? This is both like the simplest and least simple question <laughs> that you have ever put to me on this show. Okay, so Katamari Damashi, you play as the prince, a little guy with a green pill head, whose father is the king of all cosmos, who has accidentally destroyed all of the stars in the Earth's sky <laughs> on a bender. <laughs> Says he's high on nature, whatever that means. And uh, the moon he has destroyed, and the notably. Moon. Yes, he has also destroyed the moon. Uh, so to create new stars to put back and replace the ones he broke... He orders you to go to Earth and roll around this little ball called a Katamari, which uh, sticks to any objects that are smaller than it. And so as things adhere to it, it gets bigger, and then you can roll up more things because you're bigger than more things. So each level is a space on Earth where you're usually asked to roll up a Katamari of a certain size within a time limit. Uh, and there are also some side challenges with different goals, like finding specific objects to roll up, things like that. Um, but key to note is... All you do as the prince is roll your katamari. That's yep. it. A nice sticky ball. Yeah. That grab stuff. Grab stuff. That's what this game is. Yeah. At least mechanically. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these games that tried to figure out exactly what katamari damasi would translate to in English, and it doesn't have a the cleanest translation, but it seems to translate to something like clump spirit, but not but like spirit is in like school spirit. Oh. Not like spirits. Oh, you know? like like, uh, like enthusiasm yeah, for. Yeah. So like an enthusiasm for the clump. I felt that. <laughs> That's apt. <laughs> yeah. So as someone who just knew not too much about this game, what was it like turning it on, watching, I don't know. Baffling. <laughs> yeah. The most bonkers opening cutscene you'll ever see and then playing the first few levels of this game. So I very quickly got to the this might be love place with the game. I think by the end of my first sitting where I played, you know, the first couple of levels, including the tutorial, um, I was ready to think this was going to be an important game for me. However, I also was completely overwhelmed and I had no idea what I was supposed to be making of any of this. Like, <laughs> At this point, the idea of putting any meaning behind any of it, like, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get enough of an interpretive toehold in this to be able to have a conversation about it beyond just what it feels like to roll a bunch of stuff up in a ball. Would, would that but would that not be enough, though? Oh, I mean, I think it would. It happens to not be all, which is delightful. But I mean, just to just to give you a little bit of a sense of what the opening sequence is. Um, so the first thing you see after a psychedelic candy colored hallucination of an opening like overture title screen. And and again, in the early 2000s, I just want to reiterate how we didn't see things like this very often. Was that the brown and gray times, would you say? No, I think the brown and gray times came even came later. Okay. I associate the brown, the peak brown and grayness with like the PS3 era. Okay. <laughs> But we're getting there. We're okay. definitely moving towards a brown and gray time. This opening scene is a hallucination from start to finish. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so much. Dancing bears, dancing mushrooms, a flying king in the sky. It's It's got it all. Um, but the game's op real opening sequence that sets up what it is about is just the king of all cosmos spinning like a top, which you view him from like the top of his head down. So you don't even fully know what you're seeing just knocking all of these stars out of the sky and then crashing into the moon and sending it flying and then you see him from the bottom like from the bottom of his feet under the robe 
like flying towards earth and then it cuts to him talking to you and (laughs) calling you his son and telling you he was high on nature and accidentally knocked everything out of the sky and now you guys have to make stars together and then this is the point when as a player you say okay (laughs) (laughs) and you just just go with it you just kind of keep going forward assuming that at some point things will start to make a little bit more sense you at some point shortly after the tutorial will be treated to a very short cutscene in a completely different graphic and art style um, that is a mom speaking to her two kids who are watching TV and news comes on and I think they say all the stars have gone from the sky. But that also is in this like very stylized sort of uh, rounded boxy geometric. I don't know how to describe this. Um, but yeah, again, you don't I wouldn't say I was any further ahead in my quest to understand what I'm supposed to be thinking about all of this, um, you know, at the one hour mark than I was right after the first opening setup. I mean, at this point, you're just describing even what happens in the cutscenes. So so how was your first experience exploring the actual game world? Well, it's funny because you go from this sort of um, very heightened cosmic level uh, sort of crazy Um, stuff going on to this visual language that is so hard to describe. So it's, it's, it's like flat early 2000s clip art, but if you made it 3D and you took all the ugliness out and instead you like shot it with candy colored delirium, like everything just has this like uh, cute, playful, toyish filter over it. Uh, and it's just when you're in the game world, it's completely obsessed with these super mundane objects, like t- to an extent that's hard to articulate. Like your your first time spinning around the actual world space, you're picking up like thumbtacks and pencil erasers and tubes of lipstick and uh, crackers that fell on the floor um, and teacups Uh, nail polish, uh, you know, batteries, like just literally the most household objecty stuff. And just so much of it. Yeah. So much stuff in this house. Yeah. And I think it's important. I think it's important to mention that like, so you'll have generally things in a room or a space that sort of belong more or less in that space, but they're not where they belong in that space. So like you might have depends you know, who you ask. De- I guess um, you might have like uh, in a kitchen. You'll have teacups and things of meat and paper towel and whatever. But there will be like rows and stacks of like any one of those objects. There will be a couple hanging from balloons suspended, floating through the air. Like they're arranged in the space in a very unabashedly gamey sort of way to lure you to you know, do these big strokes with your Katamari where you very elegantly, if you have the skill, pick them all, pick up these like 20 erasers that are all in a line that curve around the whole side of this desk. And so they really are, they're like such a fascinating mix of like mundane objects with like a specifically like built for you and your Katamari sort of level layouts. Um, and the effect is just like very surreal, but also like weirdly grounded. It's so hard to explain what it's like to be in this world. <laughs> and on top of that, there's there's living things as well. There's, uh, you know, mice. 
there's cats as you get bigger, there's bears, there's birds, there's eggs that hatch into birds, there's like everything. And, you know, despite in some ways the simplicity of the art, everything has a lot of personality. Um, and I mean, it like, so we only have one real character in this game. I mean, maybe the, the prince is like obviously a character, but the king of all cosmos is really the one who gets characteristics assigned <laughs> yeah early early front runner for naughtiest boy oh of so season naughty two. so naughty are we gonna have uh, a worst dad category <laughs> at the end of this year <laughs> i feel if we played games of released in the last five years oh we could god. have a easy worst dads category oh my god <laughs> you might not might... even win oh yeah he's just like he drunkenly wipes out a whole cosmos and then is like damn, why did my son do this? Like, he just turns to you like, well, you better get started cleaning this up. It's so wild. He calls you loser prince when he's giving you instructions. He, like, keeps getting you gifts, but then throwing them away or dropping them or giving them to other people. So you have to go find them in the level. The gifts are like a little bonus item for you to try to find in each of the spaces. Um, he loves body shaming you. He loves body. He loves how huge he is and how small he is. And or how on, small the prince is. Yeah, how small the prince is. And also, can we talk about what's up with the king's body? <laughs> so he's got this like massive, uh, like velveteen patterned pill head with like a very geometric face in the middle. But then he's got like this hunky wrestler body underneath it. He's like weirdly jacked and he's got unmistakably and very weirdly for this game a david bowie bulge situation happening <laughs> yep it it's very in your face um <laughs> so like there there's a lot of this guy he calls himself we um he's always telling you about the places he's been visiting and speaking other languages and being like oh you should go visit there as well oh like that's possible like what don't tell me this you don't need to be like this yeah, I don't know. He's he's so so weird. He like he tells you what size he wants his catamaris, but then if you bring him one that is that size, he tells you how disappointed he is. <laughs> it's like <laughs> just communicate what you want. I'll bring you what you want. One. He always wants a bigger one than what he says. He's always just asking for a minimum viable product because he knows that that's probably what the prince will deliver. <laughs> yeah, and like at the end of the game, I think he remarks that from all this work, you grew two centimeters. Like, thanks, Dad. That's <laughs> that's super. Um, so I don't. He's just like, for how little time you spend with him, there's just so much there. He also like is both uh, this very accidental and casual, like literal destroyer of worlds, but also exhibits this real like tenderness and love for so many of the objects that are there. Um, and so he, I don't know, he just is, he's very interesting and very memorable. His great music. He has, his music is such a departure from the music everywhere else in this game. It's incredible. What do you mean by his music? Oh, the king has music. The king's <laughs> fugue. Oh, yeah. It's like a Baroque, um, it's like a very traditional Baroque piece, but with vocals, like digitized vocals singing almost like they're trying to sound like a harpsichord like would be used mm. in traditional baroque music it's so weird. it fully took me back to like grade 6 piano lessons and being like oh i know what kind of thing this is but it i don't know it's very weird it's very distinctive and i don't know it like 
it just adds up to a very, very memorable impression, despite you not spending tons of elaborate time with him talking about lots of different things, you know? And and like, despite all this, he's still constantly amazed by how much junk there is on Earth. He's like, like just wow, how much stuff there, there is. There sure is a lot of things on Earth. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, yeah, there is. And you, you felt compelled to, to help him out as the prince. Uh, I mean, I wanted to. I wanted to roll the Katamari and make <laughs> things in a big ball. <laughs> yeah, right. Like there is something inherently appealing about that action. It's fun. It's so fun. <laughs> Even though it's it's a little bit destructive. Uh, more than a little <laughs> bit, I would say. It, and things, let me tell you, many things, living things do not want to be in that ball. <laughs> That's it. Like it's a game of right, part of the game is about taking pleasure in these transgressions. Yeah. And uh, you're as complicit as as the king. I, I call it the little stinker ple- pleasure, <laughs> like being a little stinker. Um, that's definitely present in this. Uh, and I definitely like I see some lineage here tonally with certainly a game like Donut County, which I actually remember being described at the time as sort of like inverted Katamari Damashi, even though I didn't fully have the context for what that yeah, do meant. Do you want to explain what you do in that game? Oh, sure. Uh, it, in that game, you play as a hole that like um, slides around the screen. And when you get under an object that is small enough to fall into the hole, it falls into the hole and makes the hole bigger. So you're instead of being a ball that's like rolling things up, you're a hole that's going around trying to suck things into you so that you get big enough to suck in more things. Um, But it has a sort of similar spirit of like you pursuing a pretty silly goal and like sucking things into your plan that do not want anything to do with you. And also, honestly, like a little bit of the goose game spirit here as oh, well. Oh, the title goose game, yeah. Yeah, the like, I will cause problems on purpose mm-hmm. for my own joy. Like that is here as well. Those people played Katamari, I think. Yeah, I think totally. You're, yeah, you're, you're, you nailed it. That the, there is a consistent tone between those, and and I mean, it is fun to to be a little naughty. Yeah, little stinker. <laughs> uh, so, shall we take a quick break and? come back and talk about what you actually do in this game in much more detail because I think there's so much to say about this game from a design perspective. Oh my god, yes. And we're back. And now I want to talk a little bit more with you about the actual game itself, what you do, the design of this game, because Mm -hmm. the other thing aside from you know, the tone and just the general aesthetic of this game that was so refreshing and almost shocking, you know, in 2004 was the simplicity of this game. Sure. As you mentioned, it's a game built around one key action, one key verb, which is just rolling. Rolling your ball. Yeah. In the, in the early 2000s, something so simple and clear was a rarity. Um, but if you 
if you read some interviews with Takahashi, you can see that it really does kind of call back to the games of his youth. So this this game was published by Namco. And the reason that Takahashi wanted to apply for a job at Namco is because he remembered that some of his favorite games from his youth were published by Namco. Games like <laughs> Pac-Man and Dig Dug. Again, really simplistic games, right. Right? arcade games. And I think there's a, a real connection here between the simplicity and the clarity of design of 80s arcade games and and Katamari Damashi. I think that's... That completely makes sense. And actually, when when he applied for a job, Takahashi says that during his interview, he even told his interviewers up front that he was so disappointed in Namco (laughs) that they were so focused on what he called 3D polygon-driven games with no sense of humor. This is only dudes in (laughs) interviews. Do not try this technique. (laughs) So he he applied for this job in in 1999 and and at this time Namco was really associated with things like Tekken, Soul Calibur, right. um Ridge Racer, these games that he really had no interest in making and they were getting increasingly complicated. And so he says that some people at the interview did not like him, did not want to hire him, but um but one person really fought for him and kind of took him under his wing. Hmm. And so that's what that's what kind of got him in the door. But even once he was in the door, he really had no interest in working on sequels, racing games, shooters, fighting games. All the categories. <laughs> <Yeah. that there. laughs> uh, so what happened was that he was assigned to small prototype projects, I think in hopes on the part of his supervisor or, or his first supervisor, his boss, that, you know, he might develop something of, of his own that could actually get get made, even though the chances were pretty slim. Sure. Uh, so one of the first small prototype games that he worked on was a, a driving game project. Uh, and while working on it, at the very least, he started kind of brainstorming new forms of gameplay within a driving framework, which you can see yep. uh, in Katamari. Even though in terms of what inspired him to Katamari, he says it just came to him. He was just like walking around and it just popped into his mind. <laughs> he just like had a vision of something rolling other things up. Okay. And 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 there was the game. There's kind of no... I mean, I can't imagine what steps would lead to this. <laughs> so that kind of makes sense. And so he, he did have this... And so he eventually had this idea for Katamari and he... And he and he pitched it, and it sounds like you know that this isn't the kind of game that Namco typically makes. You know, they they take it under advisement, uh, but it didn't really look like this was an idea that was going to move forward within their structure. But one of his colleagues had an idea of a potential way to move it forward, um, because at this time Namco was partnering with a computer graphics school to help prepare their students to develop for the upcoming PlayStation Two. Hmm. And as part of that program, the class project was to develop uh, a game or at least a prototype. Uh, and these were really junior artists and people with no real history in game design. So they needed something relatively simple to work on. And so Takahashi pitched his idea, which is what became Katamari. And that's kind of the project they worked on. And then he went and joined them and that became his team. That is nuts. Yeah, it's like a it's like a a cool story. And also all the graphic design on this is all like done by people who are still in the student phase. So I'm not sure if when it got scaled up for okay, a sure. full release, how many of those people came forward. Sure. Um, if they put other people in the team, uh, I'm sure they did. Uh, but it really got its start in this, you know, in this kind of collaborative classroom context. How cool. Yeah. And, and Takaji even says like when, when he was working with those people, one of their goals was to make a game that would appeal to people who had become disillusioned with recent games. He wanted to rekindle people's passion for gaming. He said he wanted to do away with current stereotypes in games. And he just wanted to make people have a fun gameplay experience. And so I think that all kind of worked out that for him. That comes through. I think, yeah. yeah. 
And yeah, so they made this this prototype. They got to go ahead to flesh out into a full game. They were given a very small budget. At the time, it would have been the equivalent of six to 800,000 US dollars, which was about a tenth of most of the games right. Namco was uh, publishing at the time. Uh, but they were able to do what they needed to do with that budget. And and uh, the rest is history. Voila. We have Katamari. <laughs> But I think the the main takeaway from Takahashi's approach is again that the simplicity, the pairing games down to an essence of you know fun gameplay, mm-hmm. locating what that fun core of the gameplay will be, and then um, expanding on it. He was really interested in a relatively minimal game. He says as he was making it, supervisors were telling him, you know, you got to add some power ups, you got to do right. something, and he, and he rejected that. He said no. Yeah. I'm just well, not doing it. I was gonna say when you're saying that he he's focused on this one thing this one idea and then adding to it. I was going to say like not adding to it very much actually. <laughs> there's there's a conspicuous you sort of have your full tool set. You have your full move set like from the very first level. Yeah, so do you want to describe kind of what this game is, how you play it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Cuz we've we've described in the abstract what you do, right? You roll around a sticky ball and collect debris. But what do you the player do? Yes. Well, what you the player do is push your two joysticks on your controller. (laughs) So this took me a while to figure out. Basically, you have to think of it as if each joystick is one of the prince's hands. Yes. So when you are pushing them both forward at the same time, you are rolling the katamari forward. You can roll it to the side by pushing both to the side. You can rotate or turn it by pushing one up and one down, which you can imagine spatially as the prince sort of turning the angle the ball has momentum in. And, you know, you can go backwards and there's some other slightly fancier sort of maneuvers you can do. You can do one where you toggle up and down really quickly and it kind of revs up like a sonic spinball and then takes off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And crucially, most usefully, if you uh, click the two uh, sticks down, he'll flip around and jump to the opposite side of the ball. So you can like really quickly 180 reverse the direction that you're looking in and going in uh boy do you need that one (laughs) yeah that's the one that's the one move in the game that i think is a kind of a cheat i mean a necessary cheat because the rest of the controls all lend themselves so much to this idea of a tactile game a game where you can feel the weight of the katamari like having you use both the joysticks instead of just one joystick to push is such a genius idea yeah it's so simple but it it it's so meaningful in terms of how you experience the world that you feel like you're actually, you know, maneuvering, manipulating this object that is just kind of getting so big and unwieldy and out of your control. Yeah. Well, and I'm so interested in what you said about um, him being a sculptor and a tactile artist first, because it it takes a while to especially, I think, get comfortable with turning and maneuvering around the ball. And the big point where it clicked for me, because so... If you want to turn left, you have to put the right joystick up and the left joystick down and vice versa, which for a while I was like, well, why do I put right up when I want to turn left? So these are tank controls. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, what what ended up making it click for me was when I mimed the motion with my hands of Mm. how would you Mm -hmm. turn a ball to face left? And then you realize your right hand is Mm. going Mm -hmm. forward and your left hand is going back. And as soon as that very concrete, like, oh, the joysticks are his hands thing uh, was in place, I was able to so easily, I mean, you know, there's... (laughs) There's a slight learning curve. There's a slight learning curve and like practice makes perfect. But conceptually, that was the moment when I like 
understood how the controls were working. Um, and I really think that that experience and, and maneuvering this ball that is comes to be so much bigger than you, has its own momentum, has its own weight, can be slingshotted all around by objects that bump into you that have their own momentum. That's so much of the story of, of this game mm. and what you're actually doing that maintaining that really tactile connection, I think, is is really fundamental. Yeah, it does become second nature after a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's just something so satisfying, you know, when you're pushing and you have a lot of momentum and you need to just stop and having to use both your hands and to, you know, push one joystick forward, one back to try to stop. And it really yeah. does feel like you're, you know, clinging, trying to grab yeah. onto this thing to stop it against <laughs> its own momentum. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, maybe even better use of tank controls than uh, Silent Hill. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. It's a these, great use of them, actually. really, really work. This is really good implementation Because you of do want to, you want it to feel a bit clunky. You want it to feel a bit clumsy because of what you're actually doing is, you know, a monumental yeah. task. It feels like it could get away from you. Mm. Like, you're always trying to contain it and trying to to control it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's really, really good at, at making you feel that. And I mean, it does, it makes great use of the, um, of the, vi- of the vibration in the controllers. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound effects really, I think, contribute to yes. the feeling of being in a tactile world. I don't know. They they found the most satisfying like plop sound when you pick oh, up an God, object. It's so good. It's like a drop of water falling from a very high distance. But it's just like when you go across a whole field of things and you get like plop, 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 it just feels incredible, like bubbles popping. Yeah, um, it's like they found the perfect sound to give you that uh, kind of positive reinforcement yeah. feedback that also makes you feel like, you know, that something has like stuck to your catamaran. Yeah, 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 yeah. It- and honestly, some of the clumsiness that we've been talking about, I imagine that's something that's really hard to fine tune because you still have to keep it within a range where it doesn't just feel frustrating or like too overwhelming. You know what I mean? Like it has to feel like you have enough control over it, but not full control over it. Right, and... This game is not using, you know, a physics engine that's mimicking real world f- physics one to one. It can't. I think that game would be a disaster. Right. It, it's it's fudging it a lot. It does some playful things. For example, if you pick up an object that's longer than the Katamari is wide, yeah. if you pick up, a, a, like, I mean, if you're small, if you pick up like a nail file or a or a thermometer. You know, you you have to deal with that, and you kind of flop over, and it's so yeah. much harder to to roll your Katamari because you have this huge long Lopsided thing sticking thing. out that's yeah. like making you. Like a vault. Yeah, Yeah, like vaults you until you pick up enough things to round yourself out again, (laughs) which is really fun. Yeah, I think another thing um, that really in the physics is super effective and and helps with that tactile sense is how some of the slingshotting works. So um, objects of like a certain size or especially ones that have their own momentum or are moving like remote control cars or sometimes animals or people. if you crash into them and they're big and bigger than you enough, they will actually like launch you back in the opposite direction, uh, like pretty violently. Like it'll take <laughs> you a second to get back in control. And so that both is fun because when you crash into things or bounce off anything with uh, a good bit of force, stuff actually breaks off of your catamaran and goes flying. It's like there's some sort of level of uh, like surface tension or like gravity that you have and things just break out out of it and so you lose size by being really clumsy and so this is really fun but one of the one of the best ways that i think this game uses its physics to articulate or make you feel you getting bigger 
is the progression from, oh, this cat that in early levels sends you flying, and then as you get a little bigger, it doesn't send you flying anymore. You just bump into it. And then you might get to a stage where you're big enough to roll over it, but not to pick it up yet. Mm -hmm. And then finally, close to the end under the time limit, you roll over and pick up that cat that sent you flying so many times and does this like, wow. And it's like, you can see it still in your Katamari rolling around. And it just like, it's so satisfying to go from being thrown around like you're you're nothing with your tiny ball to like having this heft where you're just like consuming things. Oh man, this game's fun. Yeah, I think there's something I want to talk about in more detail, this idea of progression or, or the ways that the game compels you to keep playing. Because like you said, it, those are your controls. This is what you're doing the entire game. Yeah, you're doing one thing. There are no power-ups introduced. What you, what you can do in the first level is what you can do in the last level. Yep. Very little extra is added. And I think this is something that so many games are scared to do. Uh, I don't know if many developers could even get away with it. But I also think it it gives us a chance to really think a lot about what this game is doing from a design perspective. Sure. You know, Anna Anthropia, a yeah. game designer, when she talks about game design, she she talks about the rules of the game being the game's characters, which I think is a really useful way to think about this. And she's like, OK, what you need to do is if you think about your rules and your verbs as characters, when you're designing your game, how do those things evolve over time? How do they develop? How do they stay interesting? How do they come into conflict with each other? Hmm. And in some cases, right, how they develop is some some designers would add power ups. Right. In this case, though, they didn't. So I'm wondering, how did, for you, how did this single mechanic develop over the game enough to make you want to keep playing it and and to the point where I think you really enjoyed your time with the game as a whole? I mean, I think the escalation of scale is probably the most important feature Mm -hmm. of this. Um, Because I think they're really, every time you are in a level and you sort of reach a new pinnacle of being able to pick something up that you could never pick up before there there are certain thresholds where it really feels like oh damn like i'm i'm like big now like i remember the first time you can roll up a person mm-hmm. or like a tree mm-hmm. or like i think car was a big one then buildings like um it really it, it does a good job of parceling out what your size goals are in each one so that you're going to have some of those experiences mm-hmm. in every in every level. Every time it feels like you are attaining something that you didn't achieve before. Yeah, um, the levels are designed in such a way so that you start out and you're surrounded by things that you can pick up at your starting size. Yeah. But you're immediately also exposed to things that you can't pick up at your starting size and might not be able to pick up until you're near the end goal size. Mm-hmm. And so I think the way that these levels are designed is that they allow you to do in each level, you know, like what the best JRPGs do, where you, you know, <laughs> return to the place where you began at the end with a completely different perspective. Uh, you see, in this case, literally how much you've grown. Things that seem challenging at first are are no longer challenging. You know, that that shitty kid who's getting in your way at the beginning of the level, now you can just suck him into your Katamari and it's so, like you said, so satisfying. Yeah. And that's the structure of each level, but that pace never really gets old, especially yeah. because the game scales you up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where the focus is really to the game's benefit, because also, like, this is not a terribly long game. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there are plenty of, you can go back and do levels and try to do better on them, try to impress your dad, if that's how your psychology works. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, this game just really, like, hits and moves on. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think... Um, 
some really careful scoping in that sense lets I can imagine that it let the team focus on tightening and refining so many other things about the experience that I really appreciate. I mean, the the one other thing that I think really uh, keeps this mechanic fresh over time is the way the spaces are laid out. Like you start very much in sort of like a, a dining room or like a, a sort of kitchen space where you're rolling around very, very small objects. Eventually, once you get big enough to be able to get past, you know, some things that are stacked along a threshold, you can roll out into the yard that is like attached to this this house that you've been rolling around in. Um, and as you start in different spaces, you'll have levels that's, you know, you can then get into other rooms of the house. And then as you get into other levels and get bigger, you'll start in a park and then realize that once you attain a certain size, you can get into a town square. And as you get larger and only as you get larger, spread over multiple levels, you begin to see that spaces you've been before are interconnected. Mm -hmm. Like you'll begin to see that like, oh, actually this, the park space where I was like across this little pond is the town that I was rolling through before. And up the hill from that is this city that I have seen before. And so you only get the pleasure of understanding and like mapping all of those spaces as you are breaking these size thresholds that let you be able to get past the obstacles in between them. Yeah, the game is just paced so well. Yeah. Where, you know, in your first level, your goal is 10 centimeters. Yeah. <laughs> and that feels enormous based on where you start. And then in the second level is 20 and then 50 centimeters and all of a sudden a meter. And then, you know, when you end, your goal is 300 meters. Yeah, you are enormous. You are sucking up kaiju and whole mm -hmm. islands and clouds out of the sky and military tanker ships. So, th so this is the other thing that I think is part of the development of this idea and this mechanic is just the pull of the objects that you can pick up. Yeah. Because there, like you said, there are some very mundane objects. There are some very not mundane objects yeah. in this game. Like you said, kaiju, like yeah. there's a Godzilla. There's, there's a there's, Nessie. There's yeah. like a, yeah. There's a huge octopus. There's like sumo wrestlers fighting. Yeah. There's like an Ultraman swinging around something else, like swinging around a villain. Just an incredible amount of weird stuff to yeah. pick up and the pull of going to the next level and seeing, you know, beyond the thumbtacks, what's the weird thing that you can pick up at yeah. this level is, is, is so much fun as well. And I guess what we're on pacing, the other thing that the game gets really well is how you grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so you spend the majority of your time in a level getting up to say from say 10 centimeters to one meter. Yeah. But then once you kind of hit that one meter mark, the rest of the level is almost pure reward where yeah. <laughs> you're 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 able to pick up so much more stuff that you're just growing faster and faster and that really prevents that mechanic and the rolling from getting boring within say your 25 minute time limit in the final level yeah you have this arc of challenge and then like mastery and ease within mm -hmm. every single level mm -hmm. i mean some of them I would say some of them are timed to the point where you're you're kind of hustling until pretty close to the end. There's definitely some levels that I mm -hmm. hit the required threshold with not a ton of time left. Um, but yeah, like you said, lots of them. The first, you know, twenty percent of your your growth of what you have to grow will be sixty percent of your time, and then the rest is just gravy. It's so fun. Yeah, and then yeah, and your catamaran just gets bigger and bigger, and and every time it kind of 
grows meaningfully in size. You get you get like a little shimmer effect on the yeah. screen and like a celebratory sound that's like like you yeah. you like made it to the next threshold. Yeah. I mean, obviously what's happening there from a technical standpoint is that it's basically a loading screen so you can kind of change the perspective so that you oh yeah you can actually see <laughs> yourself from a different vantage point and right right you know i like you can now pick up different items and other items are kind of gone from the map because they're so small you can't even see it's them anymore with, yeah right like there's that's going right, on in the right, background right, right. but you get the little uh casino-y reward oh man that's oh, so man. satisfying that you don't even care that's hiding a load screen yep Oh, and, and then the other thing that the game does to at least mix it up a little bit to make sure that you don't get too bored of the same mechanic over and over is that it has a separate set of constellation levels where you're building a constellation yeah. where the king gives you a much more prescribed goal. Yeah, these are ones where he might ask you to find a specific object to roll up or types of a specific object. Related to the constellation that you're making. Yeah, so I think the first one you encounter is Cancer, um, like the Zodiac. And so he wants you to roll up crabs. And this level is just like covered in crabs. There's also things that are not crabs in it, but you got to get all the crabs. And there's a counter counting how many crabs you get. And Mm -hmm. that's the measurement of how well you did. Yeah, and so it's not, you're still, the mechanics are still exactly the same. Rolling your ball. But your priorities and how you encounter that level are slightly different because now you're really only focused on the crabs and and nothing else. Uh, This becomes, I think, the most interesting in the uh, twins one. Yeah. Because you only it only counts if you capture a pair of things. Mm -hmm. So if you if you're rolling around clumsily and say there are two shoes and you just grab one of the shoes, it does not count as you getting the object until you get the matching one. And that's so easy to do because like we said, if you get anything sticky outy into your Katamari, you can very easily (laughs) be like lurching up on this pole or whatever as you happen to roll over the thing you're trying to pick up. And so, you know, that's not as simple of a thing as it sounds like. (laughs) I um. I was impressed with the idea behind the ones that are uh, like Ursa is an example um, where it wants you to get the biggest bear you possibly can. I hate these levels. So I find them extremely hard. However, I think it's a it's an interesting idea and application for this game to attempt. Yeah. So basically in these levels. So, for example, yeah, this one, you need to get the biggest bear. Yeah. But what it doesn't actually what it's not really clear about the first time you yeah. play it. <laughs> Is that you're only allowed to pick up one bear. The first bear you touch is your bear. And that's what counts. You know, that's what the king will will evaluate. Yeah. So what you need to do is avoid all bears and all bear. Which there are many. And all bear related objects. Yeah. There's like a cow one later and you have to avoid milk, for example. I was going to say that's how I ended my first cow one. It was all (laughs) bottles of milk right in front of you. And I was like, oh, thank you. And then it just was like, ooh, this is a bad catamari. It's like, what? That's not a cow. (laughs) Yeah. So in this case, you have to do the opposite of what you've been doing strategically and avoid most of the objects and just pick up the non- bear related objects <laughs> to get big enough until you can actually grab for example an actual bear which is quite big and a we'll, good bear and yeah. uh, will make the king cry tears of joy yeah i did not make him cry tears of joy on this level no the, the game is really generous because you can just pass the level by getting the smallest possible thing it doesn't yeah. force you to replay it until you get a major bear which is great yeah and your dad will be disappointed but you're used to that by now <laughs> and you can just move on just like all of us do in real life <laughs> I guess the thing that, you know, as we're talking about these really specific details of how levels work and the design philosophy and everything, something that I don't want us to lose track of, because I think it's really central to this game, is that there's something genuinely magical about what this all adds up to. 
Um, I think a thing that I've noticed and felt myself doing um, with a lot of sort of smaller scope games, indie games or whatever, is we sort of evaluate them with a more generous spirit than we may take to AAA games, where it's like, we understand there are resource limitations and you're choosing to do something smaller and focused. So it doesn't need to produce the same kinds of effects or impacts that, you know, bigger games sometimes do. And I do not feel like I was evaluating or loving mm. this game on like the indie, like handicap evaluation method. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you so much more than, you know, what could we do with this rolling mechanic we we dreamed up? And I, I just like, I don't want us to get lost in a, a, a really technical discussion of what makes this game great, because I think this is this game is so much more fun to play than it is like to watch or to think about or talk about. And it's still pretty fun to watch. It's super fun to watch. Um, I, I don't know. There's just there's some sort of there's like a real alchemy here. I mean, that's true. But I, do, I don't know if you can if we can separate that from what it's doing at a pure design level, like how. Yeah, sure. How clear the vision is and how it is the perfect example of taking one idea, one idea that you can prototype and realize that, you know, that core nugget of an idea is is quite fun and then perfecting it and iterating on it and not adding any bulk. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I think for me, that's the that's the one major thing I learned from this game, which is like is so often extrinsic elements are added to a game way too early or before an idea is fully explored. And, you know, that often makes a game bulky before it needs to be bulky. Mm. And there's just something here about the insistence to keep the game small and focused that I find even even now still so refreshing. Yeah. I even think, for example, in a lot of really great indie games that have really unique core ideas, there's still the temptation in a lot of those to add extra stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and sometimes you don't need the extra stuff, though it's probably harder to actually sit with your idea and and you know and push it to its limits than it is to just to add, you know, to to kind of bring an artificial twist on the idea. Yeah, and I bet it's hard to edit down stuff that mm-hmm. was in earlier versions of the game that you've like spent time on and that you like some things about. Mm-hmm. Um even if you realize later on, like, oh, we really don't need this, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, this game kind of reading about how it made its way to North America, which is kind of a separate thing. And one of the reasons it did is because it caught the attention of other game designers. This is such like a game designer. Yeah. This is such a game that game designers appreciate. And the one word that kept coming up when they were talking about it was just coherent. And, And I think this relates pretty much directly to Takahashi's background in fine art and his background in sculpture to really think about this as, as a whole. Okay, so I feel like we've been bearing the lead a little bit here. Yeah. Because we've been talking a lot about the game as an aesthetic whole, and we've left out maybe the most important component. The music. 
Yes. You love this soundtrack. This soundtrack is all time. It's it's all time. It's incredible. I'm not saying there are no duds on it, but like I, this, I don't know. There might be a single dud and that's it, which is pretty astounding. And everything like else when? is like incredible. When do you have games that only have one dud? And the thing is, like it, it, it's not even enough to say the others aren't duds. It's like yes, the others are yeah. exactly the others are absolute bangers. Like the others would be an average song on this soundtrack would be the standout track on like ninety nine and a half percent of other game soundtracks. I don't know really how to put it except that like this music makes me feel alive. It like without meaning to be too like romantic about it. It it's like surprising and fresh and energizing and it makes me feel like there are still good surprises left for me to encounter in this medium and honestly somewhat like in the world like it (laughs) makes me feel like so optimistic and so just happy like this soundtrack is so so magical so this the soundtrack to to katamari is also a result of a back to basics approach so takahashi didn't actually have much to do with the soundtrack he just kind of put his music director Yu Miyaki in charge sure and Miyaki's whole philosophy was that he just wanted to create songs that were memorable and melodic like the songs that he remembered from when he used to play video games in his youth that is Uh, that really syncs up with the approach um because it was also this period in terms of game music where games had started to take on more filmic scores okay and you, I mean, there was still good music, but you really lost the catchy melodies that defined you know, the 8 and 16-bit eras. Hmm. And this is really just Miyaki's attempt to do that, but in a more modern version, right? Using, not using chiptune, yeah. but using orchestra and vocals. And a range of the most surprising instrumentation selections that you could possibly think of. Like, I've been trying to think how to explain what this game sounds like first of all there's a lot of variation between different tracks so yeah and and Miyaki says what they did their strategy was to kind of go out and find singers who were once popular and then kind of fallen off the radar oh and collect all these vocalists and then based on which vocalists they had then develop tracks for them and their styles I love that I think that's absolutely beautiful and that explains to some extent there's like a sweetly old-fashioned or classicness to mm-hmm. some of it at the same time that a lot of it feels incredibly, incredibly modern. Um, it just feels like outside of time. Like I, It's like jazzy, psychedelic J-pop, <laughs> but with like influences from all these different really eclectic places, right? Like you definitely, there's like a Latin presence. There's definitely some like electronic and techno. I mentioned the Baroque piece earlier. There's like funk, fusion, there's like classic American songbook, like swing pieces. There's like some somewhat avant-garde stuff, but just like such beautiful orchestration, like such, it just, it's, it's like music that makes you realize how bad and boring a lot of game music mm-hmm. is, um, including soundtracks that I think of myself as liking. Hmm. So one thing, interesting thing that happened over the course of this is 
I was playing Katamari at the same time that I have been playing Persona 5 Royal okay. in my spare time. I don't know where this is going. So I really like Persona 5 when it ca- I played it when it first I played it when it first came out. But you know, Royal has some extra con- So this is the game that I picked up to play like over the holidays during downtime. So this has a great Persona 5 has a great score. Yes. All the personas have good music. Persona 5 has like a jazz fusion-y sort of score. If you besmirch Lin. Here's the thing. Boy, does Persona 5's music show its limits when you're playing it against Katamari. I have looked back and re- had to reevaluate and recontextualize my entire opinion of that game's score in light of the experience I had playing this one. Okay, but here's, here's I think, here's the distinction. And it's one I think you made unintentionally. Whereas for Persona, it's a score. Whereas for Katamari, it's a soundtrack. Sure, yeah. But I mean, I think if you line up... I think you Persona need- 5 also wants to have standout songs that you really listen to and pay attention to at the same time. Like, I think it has more sort of foreground music than a lot of games are in that genre. Sure. I mean, it's it's coming out of the JRPG tradition, which is known primarily for that kind of music. Yeah. Um, uh, but it also wants something that's much more consistent as a score. Yeah. Uh, and I think I don't begrudge it not having the kind of internal variation that Katamari has, because Katamari gets to be very short and punchy and eclectic because of its scope and its focus, like we've talked about. But I think... The, the thing that this drove home to me is how sophisticated the Katamari music is on top of just being uh, an appealing vibe and a catchy song. Like, this is, this is incredible independent music. Like, I have multiple times since playing this game just, like, put this soundtrack on mm-hmm. in my headphones and listen to it while I'm making dinner or whatever. I... I enjoy listening to it as much as I have enjoyed listening to any new album or song I have come to love in the last like five years. Like I just, I think it, it casts such a shadow. Um, And yeah, it's just interesting how much it made me relook at another soundtrack that on paper, like is in sort of this like jazzy fusion, like lots of different influences kind of space and leaning into songs with like really good hooks, all that kind of thing. I just was like, wow, this sounds thin and flat and clunky and inelegant to me after playing Katamari. Oh, that's mean. So I still like a lot of that stuff. Like when I, I think like the further I get away from Katamari, I think I'm going to come back and be like, no, I really like a lot of this, but I just, I, I raise this to express how next level mm-hmm. I think the Katamari stuff is. It's like it's a huge contributing factor to how this game ends up feeling like more than the sum of its parts. Like, I mean, it's also essential. I mean, you, you think replacing it with a different soundtrack would change the tone of the entire game. I mean, this this game, when you look at what's happening. Yeah, it's. Pretty horrific. You can put a horror soundtrack on oh, yeah. this and it works. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but there's something about this game that at the very least puts you on side with the king and the prince. It's just joyful. Like, I don't know how else to say it, but the so much of your willingness to, to go along with this, mm-hmm. yeah, is a result of... And I mean, there is a dissonance when, you know, you're hearing the human scream <laughs> as you pick them up. Yeah. In your catamaran. To this, uh, 
you know, this like lounge singer <laughs> talking I know about, you, da, 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 yeah, talking about da, da, putting them in the sky. That's the other thing. Like all the lyrics are about the yeah. Katamari. It's, Sometimes they say Katamari. I think the the English chorus of one of them that's this really like swing contemporary one is like, I know you love me. I want to wad you up into my life. Yeah, that's the one the lounge singer. Let's roll together and be a single star in the sky. Yeah, beautiful. Like, it, the thing is, and it worked like you buy it in the in the context. You're like, oh, this rules. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow it comes off sounding sweet when you're when you think about it objectively. You're like, <laughs> okay, I know we just took a break, but let's put some more music. I know you love me. I wanna word you up into my life. Let's roll up to be a single star in the sky. I hear you calling me I wanna word you up into my life Let's love up to make A single star In the sky To you So before we wrap up, I want to share with you a thing that uh, Takahashi wrote reflecting on the creation of Katamari. He wrote a postmortem that got published in Gamasutra where he outlines a few things, five things he think went really right with the game and five things he think went wrong. Mm. And uh, I want to focus on the things that went wrong to see if you agree, mostly because the things that went right, we've already covered. Like they align with what we liked about the game? Yeah. The okay. things he's the most proud of is the sense of scale that they were able to achieve, the lack of power-ups, mm-hmm. the feeling of the rolling, the peaceful, easy feeling, and the soundtrack. Great. Which I think... Good job. Yes. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> Nailed all those things. Uh, but here are some of the things he thinks went wrong or that he'd want to improve. So the first one he calls tipping the scale. He says, the game is all about getting bigger, but sometimes I wasn't able to truly feel that we had accomplished this feat. Again, this is my personal opinion, but when you become big, you instantly forget about when you were small. Even if you come back with a big Katamari to the map where you initially played with a small Katamari, you've forgotten about the experience, so you don't feel like you've gotten really big. I wish we could have engendered the feeling of, wow, I've gotten so big a bit more effectively during gameplay. Hmm. And this one, I think he's a little hard on himself. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think I talked earlier about the mm-hmm. how fun it is to come back and like pick up things that were obstacles that you struggled with in the in the earlier mm-hmm. phase. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I agree that that doesn't work. I mean, maybe he had a different vision in his head, but... I mean, knowing where they go in the sequel, you do get much bigger. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so maybe it's a... But yeah, I think I kind of, like we talked about, I think it was kind of achieved in this one. So the second one is falling apart. His original ideas for the the disintegration of your Mm. Katamari. Uh, So he says that he thought it would be fun to include a feature that would make the Katamari reduce in size and crumble. But his original idea is when the Katamari comes across something, it can't roll over or bumps into a large object. The object that it rolled over previously should fall off and the Katamari shrinks a little. Basically, a Katamari that had grown to 300 meters in diameter could become as small as two meters by bumping into things and crumbling. As you mentioned, right, they implemented some of the minor crumbling, but that's mostly superficial. It's actually impossible for, you know, a huge Katamari to shrink down to size that if it bumps much, into yeah. things just due to technical limitations. And that was something that he he hoped that he could have included. And he thinks that, it, and as a whole, the crumbling feature was vague and didn't communicate what it wanted to communicate and wasn't very effective. Uh, so yeah, do you agree with him on on that? 
I suppose, but I didn't miss it. I actually, one of the things that I like is the way it is implemented. Specific objects fly off your Katamari when you bump mm-hmm. it and you see them go. And so you're not really losing size, but sometimes if you've got an especially rare object or something, like you finally got that, whatever, the Loch Ness monster, mm-hmm. and you see that go flying off, you're like, what? No, oh, <laughs> yeah, come on. Like, mean. I'm rolling yeah. back to get that. Like, oh, no, you mm-hmm. don't. So I don't know. I think it, I think it rides, um, uh, a line that works for me of still occasionally being a problem that you, you know, like mm-hmm. when you really see stuff flying off, you're like, Ooh. um, but not getting so frustrating. I mean, I can see how it would be cool to have more impact. From they that. also had a, an idea originally where the music would change dynamically based on your size. Oh, but then it just became too discordant mm. if you're, you know, changing its size abruptly. Sure. But yeah, it, I don't know if it would improve the game at all, but based on kind of technological progress and like the use of SSDs, I would be just curious to to see this game and a Katamari that could retain literally everything you've gathered in it, mm. right? That everything is in there and ev- everything could potentially be lost. Right. Like there is no, there, still, there doesn't yeah. need to be any trickery. Those thumbtacks are still on the inside. Yeah, it could actually all be processed. <laughs> and just to see what that would do, it might not do anything. I think it would just be a, an interesting technological <laughs> feat. Okay, so the third issue we had was with the camera. He calls this the, the camera and the queasy. Mm. This is the camera control didn't go as well as he thought it would. Thinking back on it, we could have used the camera to add scale for the overall gigantic feeling. We simply didn't have enough time. Wish we had more. Honestly, I'm still not sure what camera angle would have been best for the game. Did you have any problems with the cameras you were playing? I do understand this one, to be honest. It's not that I exactly had trouble, but I think in a lot of the camera settings, you know, in this way where it keeps the Katamari very center screen, there were many times when you would get to a point where like the the zoom hasn't adjusted and the Katamari is taking up a lot of your screen. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty hard to see where you're going. It's hard to see what's around you. It's hard to really know what all is in the space. It happened to me a fair number of times that I would get like a good ways into a level and not even realize there's a whole other area mm-hmm. that I could and should be going to. Whereas I think if it was a little easier to look around or you had a little more peripheral vision or peripheral awareness, I probably would have picked up on that stuff more quickly. So I don't know that I have like a better solution. It It, it is tricky because I definitely get his point that you want to use your camera angle to emphasize scale. Yeah. And if you zoom out too much, then you might lose yeah. that sense of scale. One thing that he mentioned also is that it might have been fun to have you be able to see the Katamari from the prince's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what that would look like just because it would just be like a massive color in your face, I assume. Because it would be a blur, right? Of yeah. things like moving. I imagine the print past. doesn't see much. It would be fun to have that be like a silly angle that you could like click one of the thumb joysticks and like <laughs> zoom into it just for a second to look at like these crabs in the middle of your Katamari freaking out rolled up in this ball. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Just for curiosity. But that doesn't feel like a practical <laughs> workable perspective. Okay, so his fourth thing that he he says that he would improve, he calls this not getting oblong. And he says, I felt strongly that the Katamari should roll the way it would if actually picked up a new object. For instance, if you pick up a long stick-like object, such as a pencil, mm-hmm. the pencil sticks up the Katamari, right? It has this. We talked about this. He says, in the real world, it's impossible to roll something like that grouped into a single object. But in the game, we ignored the rules of physics and allowed for any large object to stick out. The Katamari will still roll, but in a large arc. Of course, we didn't just add this movement in order to adversely affect the role of the Katamari. It was also a fun addition to enjoy a weird rolling experience. But then he says, truthfully, it actually doesn't look that fun. So I don't think it was executed that well. But I was hoping to create a game in which the negative effect would become a positive experience. 
Also, the various objects scattered all over the stages are just components to help you make your Katamari bigger, but that's boring. Every object has a shape, and the unevenness that's created by rolling up the various objects gives the Katamari a real existence. So again, wanting to just improve that. Just wanting to improve the game in a way that would account for the different sizes and textures and yeah. and shapes of the objects you pick up, which modeling that kind of in a realistic physics way would yeah. probably <laughs> be the most frustrating, unfun game. Yeah. I also don't think this, I don't agree that this is a failure on this front. I think it's pretty fun having a messed up <laughs> lopsided camera and also still choosing to take on that weird piece because it's going to grow your mm-hmm. diameter at the same time. Like, I think this is another case where he's being very hard on himself. <laughs> Okay, and then the fifth one, this is the one that I'm the most interested in, time limits. Because mm. originally he says he wanted to eliminate the time limit and let the player simply roll the Katamari to make it bigger. But he couldn't figure out how to make the game fun without the time limits. So we gave up on that idea. So this goes back to what we talked about earlier, needing some sort of friction. Yeah. So that the idea, the mechanic itself can actually develop and, and you know, and that you as the player can kind of grow and learn and become better at the game in a meaningful way mm-hmm. and still have some kind of challenge. Uh, so I don't know. Did you find that time limits stressful? Yes. Uh, it, in the first half of the game, yes. In the back half of the game, no. Once I sort of got enough of a sense of enough of a comfort with moving the the katamari and enough of a sense of the sort of strategy of like, no, you don't try to pick everything up. You like go for the things that are going to advance your size. Once that clicked, it's the time limits are like not a big crunch. They're enough that like, yeah, you got to get moving, but they're not. A huge pressure. I did get stuck. I think it was the star number four. I had to do a couple of times because I just I hadn't reached the point yet where I was being strategic about what objects I was trying to pick up. And so I just kept running out of time because I was like picking up little stuff that wasn't really adding to my mass. So I wasn't getting that that um, exponential growth mm-hmm. as you described mm-hmm. it. I usually don't like time limits on things, but I actually have come to think that they're a benefit for this game. Um, for three levels, there's a way to unlock like infinite mode where you don't have a time limit and you can just go have your Katamari and roll up as much as you want to your heart's content. Yeah. And just to set up how we get these levels, I think it's actually a good compromise because in order to unlock this eternal time version of the level, you have to get your Katamari to a certain size within the level under the time constraints. Right. So it's you have to overcome an added challenge mm-hmm. to then get the reduced challenge or no challenge version. Yeah. So... I had been really looking forward to this, um, and I went and we unlocked it on, I think, star four, um, of which there there are like okay. nine main or ten main levels. So I went back and was playing around with it, and it was pretty fun, but I definitely at a point got like pretty big and wasn't having that much momentum anymore because I'd sort of consumed a lot of the biggest objects in the level and was like... Yeah, the one place I keep doing this. (laughs) Yeah, the one place where this is meaningful is you can unlock it on the last level, which is exactly yeah, yeah, which is massive, and it just gives you time to explore and to pick up everything you can. It's the whole world that 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 is available in this game, and like you can really, really get big. (laughs) Uh, And so then the other question I wanted to ask you is: Can you think of any other way beyond a time limit that this could introduce that kind of friction, that kind of challenge, to make sure that the game didn't become boring if you wanted to actually eliminate the time limit i mean the king does it himself sometimes where he says you have a limited time get me the biggest bear yeah but don't touch any other bear stuff yeah or you know things that are like roll up big enough to pick up this specific object mm. um right it would, it would almost have to be a mission-based structure yeah which 
I know Takahashi did consider and then decided to put that aside because that started taking away from the rolling, right? The attention then went on figuring out strategies for the mission to succeed rather than doing the main thing, which is supposed to be rolling around picking up the debris. Yeah. I wonder if you could have some fun implementation with this if you had the thing where the Katamari can get smaller again, because you could have Mm. like a space you have to be a certain bigness to get through and then you like you have to get small again you know like oh my god you saying that makes me uh, no no well i know that 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 sounds like power-ups this is so (laughs) outside the yeah the focus of this game that i understand why you would take this away but yeah i'm not sure i can think of a better Mm. way i mean we have ones where you have to roll up you have to what really matters is how many of specific objects you can roll up um I w- other than like placing a competitor of some kind into the space, and I'm not suggesting like mm-hmm. a second player, but something else that is doing a process and you have to, which is basically a time limit, which is like <laughs> get, achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve before this other thing achieves whatever mm-hmm. it's trying to achieve, whether that's like a rocket blasting off yeah. or that, you know, like something along those lines. Yeah. Like I think these are all reasonable suggestions and I want to play all these games way less. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like I, Maybe the time lapse is the way to go. <laughs> there is a serenity that comes with like, I'm just rolling, man. Yeah. Thank you for not putting power-ups in this game. <laughs> so now that we've talked about the game, its design, its aesthetics, I had a question for you. Mm-hmm. What's this game about? Oh, my God. This is such a good question. I started this show by talking about how overwhelmed and baffled I was <laughs> at what I was meant to be taking away from all of this. And I've put a fair bit of thought into this because I hope it's been clear that I love this game. Like, I think this game is truly great. I'm actually surprised by how much you like it. I was hoping you like it and I thought you would like it, but I'm I'm really surprised by how much you you seem to have enjoyed this. Yeah. So, like, how serious do you want to be? Like, I could make an (laughs) argument that it's about how the next generation of our overlords who have messed everything up will never be able to find good solutions to fix their parents' mistakes, no matter how hardworking or sincere they are in their efforts. Oh, yeah. So this does this just apply to the prince and the king? Or does this also apply to that secondary story that's going on with, oh. the, you know, with the family that you mentioned? There's the family who's going to see their dad, who's an astronaut, and yeah. he's going to the moon, but um, the moon is disappearing disappeared so he can't go on his trip yeah and what is going to happen is the prince is going to roll that family up <laughs> and into the katamari that makes the moon and they're going to end up there without their dad and they're also stuck on the moon. presumably stuck on the moon <laughs> they so, appear in the next one they're fine okay great i mean i think mostly about the the prince and the king and like the prince's general like i'm helping demeanor <laughs> while he's doing just like the most horrible shit um <laughs> But yeah, it's just like an obliviousness to the the idea that like maybe people shouldn't be a catamaran. <laughs> like, that's a lot entertained. It's just like it's a tech bro solution to like a, a problem, you know? So, I mean, there's that like you could there's an interpretation, I think, uh, for this game that it's about playing with how we acknowledge objects in digital games and give them value, like to what extent we think of uh singular or or collective like living beings as being alive or different from objects or like what what gets to count as a as a person or a, a being that's worthwhile in in games i mean i i don't think that's just in games i think that's just in general sure i mean i think it's heightened in i think there's a 
specific video game context for that, though. Sure. But I mean, the, the, the premise of the Katamari seems to be that once you extract anything to be just part of the mass of garbage yeah. that is on the earth, whether living or dead, valuable or not, it all just becomes part of this mass. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it keeps it holds the prince and king separate from that by the fact that they any to some extent, the Japanese family, they like have an individuality in a way that makes it feel like they like you wouldn't want to see the prince wrapped up in a katamari. That would feel like something had been amiss. Well, in the sequel, you might oh, see no spoilers. <laughs> you know I'm going to play that game. It is it is kind of interesting though that you know usually a lot of the things you capture, a lot of the humans are just kind of generic, like boy, schoolboy, yeah, yeah. fat schoolboy, yeah, small schoolboy, and they're kind of ludicrous man. in their in yeah. their design. But every once in a while, some of them are named. Yeah. Chilling. <laughs> and not just so the main family who you see in the cutscenes, they're named when you pick them up, but then there are other people who just randomly seem to be named. Yep. It's like, oh, you're 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 an individual. You're just Herman. Like, uh, uh well, sorry. <laughs> guess you're yeah. guess you're gone. Hope you're hope you can become quick pals with that turtle you're stuck next to. My <laughs> Enjoy <category>. the moon. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that honestly ends up being connected to what I kind of think the actual point of of Katamari Damashi is, which is that there's something like borderline transcendent by the end about all the things that end up just being matter in a Katamari, like animals, people, statues, trees, buildings, whole islands, clouds. Like it kind of makes sense that from the king of all cosmoses perspective, like from that big of a vantage point, um, all these things are just things like i think right, scale all, makes us insignificant right right yeah we're all just uh victims to the cosmos uh, sure but at the same time i think what makes this not feel it makes it maybe makes it feel like positive nihilistic and not like <laughs> dark nihilistic is that like the king also really seems to delight in so many of the small things that are on earth like he asks specifically for maidens and crabs he talks about fashion he talks about wanting to make the sky pretty and asking you to get objects that will help make it pretty. Swan eggs. Like it, it, it sounds feels, like he cares way more about the cosmos than he cares about the earth. Well, I don't know. I think he I think he does care about the it just makes it feel like in some way those things in the ball still matter at the same time that they just are matter, not to lean on that too heavy. Like so the the zodiac or the star constellation that he asks you to get that is Cygnus. This one, the king starts by saying, oh, what's missing from the sky? What's missing from the sky? Oh, it's grace. We want to make something graceful. Bring me something graceful. And what he asks you to do is uh, roll up all the swan eggs that are in this level. Mm -hmm. It's level full of other kinds of bird eggs. You can't, it's hard to distinguish the swan eggs from the duck eggs from the chicken eggs. And all these eggs are going to hatch as they spend time in your catamarans. You're going to end up with this huge ball of basically just living birds. And it's like one of the first times I think that the game fully leans into some of the horror of sweeping up living things. Like you've already done the crab level at this point, but the crabs feel, they don't feel the same as swans. <laughs> um, that's a personal bias, I think. That's a personal, that's very speciesist, but I think it's also like in the way they're animated. I don't know. Um, and it's just like, it's the idea that he still cares about the qualities that swans have 
specifically. Um, I think there's something like there's something that makes uh, individual things not feel lost. I think to me, it it keeps it from being from feeling like all these things are meaningless. I don't know. Um, and I mean, uh, there's lots of different ways to take that, right? Like I was I was texting with a friend about this game before recording this. Um, and he was saying this is the kind of game that superficially he would probably really enjoy. It's like a action puzzle kind of thing. Um, but he said he's like very squicked out by seeing like living things inside a Katamari. And that's a perspective that I fully understand despite not feeling emotionally at all. <laughs> like I fully get why that is... Like there, there is a horror to that, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean it. It's almost made creepier by the veneer that's yeah. been pasted on top because it's, the game is going to such lengths for us to not notice. Yeah, that it almost recalls attention to itself. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think like in the end, the game is partially about the joy of steamrolling over all obstacles in the pursuit of your very silly goal. It's a very video gamey kind of joy. It's little stinker joy. Yep. Um that is that was Takahashi's goal. He did it. He in did the, it masterfully. The lineage of little stinkers like Dig Dug and Pac-Man. <laughs> yep. So any last thoughts? So Michelle's not going to do scores anymore. You know, Attaching a numeric value to a game is so 2015. It's passe. It's de classe. So to end these, Michelle will just give her final ruminations and let us sit with those. I have a couple last thoughts. Okay. Five tier piggyback rides. Surprisingly popular. <laughs> Cryptids are everywhere if your ball gets big enough. The king also sends intangible concepts to Earth like flavor. And finally... The cops ignore you. There are cops in this game and they ignore you until you're big enough to be a threat to them. And then they just immediately start shooting at you yet manage to be completely ineffective. Make no difference. No further comments. <laughs> thank you for those final thoughts. You're so welcome. Uh, and thank you for listening. <laughs> um, that's our episode for today. As always, if you enjoyed it, please rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. You can find more details about this show and show notes at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. And another change we're going to make, since we're just doing one episode per game, in case you'd like to play along, we're not going to be cute about what the next game is. We're just going to tell you. So our next game is going to be WarioWare Inc. Mega Micro Games for the Game Boy Advance. So if you can get a hold of that, it's 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 a joy. So feel free to play along and we'll see you next time when we play WarioWare because understanding the relationship between capitalism and farting is an essential part of becoming a gamer. <laughs> <laughs>